Hey friends, Catlaw Hagquist here with a reminder that locally owned and artist operated bizbooks.net is still your best source for plays, acting books, scene books, teacher resources, and much, much more. And as you, like we, are clearly fans of Sabrina and YVR Screen Scene, we want to offer you 15% off your next purchase with the coupon code SCREENSCENE23. So come check us out at bizbooks.net. Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social to learn what's new. And if you're in the Vancouver area, watch out for one of our pop-up shops throughout the year to come say hello and shop in person. Remember, Screen Scene 23 promo code is only available at bizbooks.net for a limited time. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain on the Vancouver film and television industry and celebrate its beating heart, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Furminger. Canada has a reputation as a nice country, We're polite. We don't do racism like our neighbors to the south. I'm using air quotes. People can't see, but there are a lot of air quotes there. You don't have to look very far for evidence that we are a country built on genocide and that the ugliness is present in our lives today, be it in recent denialism around the death of children at residential schools or the 3,000% increase in acts of hatred against Asian Canadians in Vancouver since the beginning of the pandemic. I do want to stay in history for a minute, though. 82 years ago, Canada labeled Japanese Canadians enemy aliens. It was Canada's response to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. The government stripped Japanese Canadians of their businesses and possessions and herded them into internment camps far from the West Coast. And even once the war was over, it would be years before these Canadians would be allowed to return to the West Coast. And most did not. The impact on Vancouver can be felt to this day. There are ghosts everywhere, or at least an absence can be felt. The Powell Street neighborhood that once boasted Japanese department stores and markets and rooming houses never recovered. And I know of people, descendants of Canadians who'd been interned, who will never step foot on P&E grounds because that was where thousands of Japanese Canadians were held before being shipped off to camps in the interior. They were housed for weeks at animal stalls and treated no better than cattle. Many died of tuberculosis. At the same time that Japanese Canadians were experiencing this cruelty, Canadian soldiers, many of them barely out of boyhood, were losing their lives in the Pacific theater and experiencing what can only be described as war crimes in Japanese POW camps. Those Canadian soldiers who were lucky enough to one day make it out of those camps carried physical, emotional, psychic, and mental scars just like the Japanese Canadians who'd been interned by the quote-unquote other side. These are big topics and emotions not often spoken about in families or taught in Canadian schools. But there is a danger in not confronting our national or family histories, and so much to be gained from doing so. We're talking about this because this act of acknowledging the past and building a bridge between two seemingly irreconcilable sides is the beating heart to forgiveness, the new play from Hirokan Lagawa that tells the story of a real-life family confronting the atrocities of the past and finding within itself a way forward. Hiro previously appeared on this very podcast in November 2019. During that episode, he spoke about his life as something of a rolling stone, as an artist, an immigrant, a well-respected actor, whose lengthy list of credits include iZombie, Smallville, Romeo Section, Men in a High Castle, Altered Carbon, and Best in Show and as an award-winning playwright whose play Indian Arm received the 2015 Jesse Richardson Award for Outstanding Original Script and the 2017 Governor General's Literary Award for Drama. Forgiveness is Hiro's adaptation of Mark Sakamoto's acclaimed memoir, Forgiveness. Ralph, Sakamoto's maternal grandfather, was a Canadian soldier of European descent who spent years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. 
Mitsui, his paternal grandmother, was one of the thousands of Japanese Canadians interned by the Canadian government. In the face of tremendous adversity and transgressions, they chose not to live a life of anger, but instead to embrace forgiveness, a gift of love they passed down to their families. Today, I am delighted to welcome Hiro Kanagawa back to the YVR Screen Scene podcast to talk about the lessons from the past, how they can inform the present and future, and the role that art can play in moving these conversations forward. Hiro, welcome back to the yeah. YVR Screen Scene podcast. Thank you, Sabrina. It's so great to be back. It's very, very wonderful to be back. This is the first episode that I'm recording in 2023, fresh out of a bout of laryngitis. So Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I did feel like my voice was trapped within me for a while, so very happy to be back. What did you know about Canada's internment of Japanese Canadians before you moved? I wasn't born here, um, but at the age of four, mm. my family moved to Guelph, Ontario. Okay. And uh, from age four until age 14. Okay. Uh, with a three-year hiatus in Sterling Heights, Michigan. That's right. Uh, I, did, I did grow up in... Uh, in Guelph, Ontario. That's right. I think this is how we started talking about you as a Rolling Stone last right. time. They're just rolling mm -hmm. all over the place. Okay. Uh, I did not learn about the internment in school. Right. Um, but there was quite a sizable Japanese Canadian community in Guelph that uh, our family was friendly with. And, and of course, many of those people had been uh, interned. And uh, one of the fan, one of the one of the old guys, he gave me a copy of a book called uh, The Enemy That Never Was by Ken Adachi, which came out in the 70s. And it, at the time, mm. it was kind of like the seminal history of the internment experience. Right. So uh, at a very, you know, I guess you could say an early age, I, I, I must have been about 12 years old, 12, 13. Yeah. Um, he gave me that book and I, and I remember reading it. Um, what do you remember about your your reaction, your response to that material and learning about people like yourself, Canadians, Japanese Canadians, you know, were basically, you know, stripped of all of their possessions and their freedom and, and mm. sent to camps? I have to say, I was not the least bit surprised. Mm. Um Looking back at my childhood in Guelph, I, it's not as if I faced tremendous racism. I, you know, I had friends and my friends were good to me. Um, of course, there's always the, you know, the slurs and the microaggressions on the, on the playground. But, you know, I could handle myself and my, and my friends stuck up for me. So it's not like I, I suffered tremendously. But at the same time, I saw that the society around us was a white society mm. um, and that my parents struggled with it. So it didn't surprise me in the least, I guess. Um, around the same time, I think the miniseries Roots came out. And I remember right. reading the novel as well. So I had an understanding that systemic racism was a part of North American culture and, and essentially the world at large. I had an understanding that race was an organizing principle mm. of the world and that white people were at the top of that hierarchy. So it wasn't the least bit surprising to me. The older people in your in your community in Guelph, did they talk about it at all? Did they talk no, about the experience of... No, they didn't. And uh, I just did a... Uh, a Q interview with Mark Sakamoto yesterday mm. and um, he revealed something very poignant in that interview which is his grandmother Mitsue who is of course the protagonist of, of his memoir mm. when he started interviewing her for his book it was the first time that he had learned many of the experiences that she had suffered during the war mm. and so he asked her grandma why have you never talked about this to anyone in the family and she said because hate can always come back hmm. and you know mark in retelling that story he said he laughed 
not at it, you know, he didn't laugh at his grandma, but he laughed at the notion because when he started writing the book, I think it was 2010 or hmm. thereabouts, Obama was in the White House and uh, people of my age or, or, you know, Mark's a bit younger than me, but people of my age or Mark's age, for our whole lives, society has been improving and progressing. Mm. And there's there was less, when I went to college, there was less racism that I encountered than when I was in high school or when I was a kid. And, yeah. and then when, you know, I was a young adult, there was less racism. And then I started a family and there was less racism and there was less racism and there was less racism. And it just seemed that society was progressing and getting hmm. better. But then, of course, you know, the last four, six years, especially. <laughs> uh, and I'm not laughing at you, but it's, mm -hmm. it's just this, like the sad, the sad chuckle, you yeah. know. And I wonder, yeah. though, if looking back, do you think that there was actually less racism or were we just, you know, were, were things just being couched in different terms, you know, well, was, was in the white supremacist system. They're mm -hmm. putting distance between, the, you know, themselves and saying, well, we don't do we don't do that anymore. But then just kind of changing the definitions of things for the language around it. Yeah. And. Uh, Scott Derrickson, the, the, the film director. Yes. Um, I became very, you know, I worked on a couple of projects with him and uh, I became very friendly with them. And uh, when um, sh when that thing happened with Trump in early in his presidency, uh, you know, in Virginia with the white supremacists marching. Ah, uh, yes, a, the Tiki Torch March. Right. And the woman was killed. And the yeah. woman was killed and... and um, and Trump came out and said, well, there were, you know, people asked, people begged him to condemn, yeah. right? The white supremacists, the, the neo-Nazis. And he said, well, there, there were good people on both sides. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and Scott Derrickson, I remember uh, tweeting when, when Trump said that, that uh, Trump took, took, took away the one thing Americans could previously agree on. Hmm. Nazis are bad. Wow. That was the end of, you know, yeah. Nazis are bad. And so, as you say, I think the racism was always there. Yeah. A lot of people previously were ashamed to reveal their racism. Mm. Right. And, um, you know, the whole MAGA phenomenon and the extreme right phenomenon, uh, a lot of people, I think, feel emboldened, yes. empowered. They feel they have permission to be their worst selves and we're dealing with that now yeah absolutely we are um, i want to i do want to talk more about the the zeitgeist and how the impact on the play um but before we we get that how did the play come to be you know like like how did that conversation you know with mark begin because yeah, his book is a mm -hmm. an award-winning book it was a canada reads yes. winner uh you know it's it i mean it, it was massive tome right like it's yes. uh you know re really felt across canada yeah so he's, yeah. Uh, I, I think people assume that i approached him that i you know really wanted to but what happened i had not read the book when it won canada reads hmm. and you know i'm an avid cbc listener so um i was listening to cbc canada reads and i thought oh i, I better check this book out mm -hmm. um and then and then it won and then soon after that, my agent, my literary agent, Colin Rivers, he uh, emailed me or he might have phoned me and he said, hey, there's a, an opportunity to write a stage adaptation of this book. Uh... You know, do you want to do you want to throw your hat in the ring for consideration? Yeah. And um, well, I said, well, I thought, well, I better read the book first. So I read it. And anyone who has read the book knows that it does not immediately suggest itself as a stage adaptation. I mean, hmm. it spans 40 years and locales as diverse as the Magdalene Islands in Quebec and BC and POW camps in Hong Kong and Japan and battlefields in Hong Kong. And there's literally a cast of, of thousands. Mm -hmm. So how do you adapt that 
as a stage play. Yeah. Right. Um, but while I was thinking about that, I had an oppor- I was I was shooting something in Toronto, so I had an opportunity to go and and meet with Mark. Um, this is something Star Trek Discovery. Pardon? Star Trek Discovery. No, it was before that. This is this was in okay. twenty. This was in twenty eighteen. Okay, yeah. so this there's there's been a long development. Yeah, this process was in, this was in twenty eighteen that that happened. Seems like another world. And uh, <laughs> and Mark invited me over for dinner. Mm-hmm. Joy Kogawa was also <gasps> invited. Oh, um, and you know, I thought at the time, well, this is a friendly meeting, a friendly dinner. Mm-hmm. But I I found out later that it was. Uh, I was being very seriously vetted. Mm. <laughs> it was an audition. You know, Joey Kogawa was there as an as another pair of eyes to suss me out. And um, I mean, it, it proceeded as a friendly dinner. But uh, yeah, I realize now that um, that they were taking a good look at me or, or kicking the tires, as, as Mark likes to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, so ultimately, he did agree uh, to give me the stage rights. Right. And then I then began the process of meeting living members of his family who are in the story. Wow. So it was it wasn't simply this incredible book. It was also you doing basically journalistic work as well. And what were you trying to get from these conversations? You know, I, I couldn't write the story without making these personages in in the book into characters mm. and i just felt such tremendous responsibility uh to do the book justice um to please people who love the book mm-hmm. but then there are these living people who i'm going to portray and of course I needed their blessing and I and I needed to also find out who they are mm. because the book is Mark's perspective right. on who they are and I needed to have my own perspective. That seems like such a big task. I mean, all, all the things you were trying to do, responsibility to the, the book, to the people who love the book, to the family, to the story. And then, you know, <laughs> a responsibility to myself to write a good play. Yeah. Right, because it isn't journalism and it's not history. Yeah. It has to be a compelling drama. But um, I went to Medicine Hat to meet Mark's dad, Stan Sakamoto. Wow! And uh, and then I met uh, Ron McLean, who was uh, still living. I feel um, like I. I mean, I've read the play. I feel like I. I know these people. Right. Yeah. You know. So we're. What were some of the discoveries? That yeah. you had during those conversations. It was it was an in- incredible. Uh, my interviews with his family were, were incredible discoveries. Stan Sakamoto is um, he was at the opening last night. It was very it was incredible um, to for him to be there. But he's one of the most gregarious, mm. uh, friendliest people. He, you know, Mark describes him as kind of like the, the King of Kensington of, of Medicine Hat. And it's true. He knows every he literally knows everyone in, in the city of Medicine Hat. Hmm. And if he doesn't, he makes it a point to you know, find out. <laughs> I remember when when I went there and yeah. he said, oh, there's a sushi restaurant. I haven't, I haven't been there yet. So we went into the sushi restaurant. Uh, we walked in. He met the proprietor, introduced himself to the proprietor. And then the whole time that we were in that restaurant, he was just learning all the details of, of the guy's life and how he came to Medicine Hat and how he got oh. into it. So, you know, he's just one of the most personable human beings you could ever hope to meet. He ran for the liberals at one time. And, uh, of course, he didn't win because it's been a conservative writing for mm. forever. But I think he, he maybe got you know as more as many votes as any liberal in history in, in that writing um so now what was important for the play aside from you know i i got this picture of the man but i had a reading of early kind of sketches of of uh scenes from the play at the medicine hat public library and uh stan wasn't able to attend mm-hmm. but i had this reading 
And after the reading, there was this gaggle of middle-aged ladies who came up to me and they were just gushing about how they all had crushes on Stan when he was in high school and they were all in love with him and he was the most popular kid and he was the president of the student council and et cetera, et cetera. And that to me was a huge, huge revelation hmm. because, you know, we obviously assume, well, Medicine Hat in the 50s, when they moved to Medicine Hat, the newspaper in Medicine Hat, the headline oh, no. was first Jap family moves to mm. the hat. So you see, and that's in the book, you see things like that yeah. and you assume, man, they must have had a rough time growing up. Yeah. And then you meet Stan and you realize the girls loved him. He was one of the most popular kid, you know. Um, so that was a huge revelation to me. Yeah. In 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 terms of how I was going to depict, obviously, their lives in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and then Ralph McLean, meeting him, he was about, I think he was 94, 95 years of age at the time. He had just recently lost his sight uh, from the result of, of uh, being, being in the, in the POW camp, camp wow. and the malnutrition that he had suffered. But not um, not a bitter bone in his in his body hmm. and just the tremendous love and admiration for Mitsue that he had it just came across so vividly as as with anyone I spoke to about Mitsue you know hmm. everyone just adored her but the 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 love that Ralph had for Mitsue was was also very important for me in terms of how I was going to portray his character and his relationship with with Mitsue. I, I, I love that, you know, we, we do see the characters on stage at the same time simultaneously throughout the play, but we don't actually see them together interacting until mm -hmm. that final scene. One of my favorite moments, though, is um, this kind of pep talk that they give towards the beginning of the second act where they basically right. tell the audience that it's about to get really rough, um, but we're all gonna get through it together. Uh, why was it important to include that particular, that particular scene? Because I almost felt like you were in some way speaking to, or they were speaking to people in the audience who have no idea how bad, don't know the history, might not know how bad mm -hmm. it's actually going to get. Right. Yeah, Act Two gets very dark. Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, Act Two is on paper ten pages shorter than Act One, <laughs> but it tends to run. Uh, at one time in rehearsals, it was running ten minutes longer <laughs> than Act One, um, which is a problem structurally. <laughs> uh, and you know we've made we've made changes to it's it's still a bit longer than act act one um but yes it's uh and part of the reason it runs longer is because it is darker mm. and more reflective uh so yeah there periodically throughout the the play as you say there are these direct address monologues um part of it is uh historical you know just facts um, but part of it is including the audience in the journey, right? yeah. which I think is important because it is, it's all of our journey. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all of ours story. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it impacts this moment. It, it's, which, which brings me to this idea of the role that a play like forgiveness can play in this, in this particular historic moment where, you know, I, I've said it a couple of times and I want to reiterate, in Vancouver, hate crimes against Asian Canadians have increased 3000%. That is not a, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, that's not a typo mm -hmm. or, or a, a vocal typo, whatever that is. Like that's an actual statistic and that's reported. Who even knows? Mm -hmm. You know, that you, they are, the racists are emboldened. People are feeling fear. What role do you think a play like Forgiveness and other works of art can can play in 
moving the conversation forward where it needs to go or you know to to impact you know to stir something you know within within people i um throughout my life throughout my career i've i've actually taken a fairly cynical uh view of the extent to which art can actually impact people mm. and change minds um I've wondered like how many white supremacists or or neo Nazis changed their mind after seeing Schindler's List, for instance, or yeah. you know, how many anti war movies are actually anti war? Do mm. they in fact actually make war seem pretty exciting? You know, even if they yeah. claim to be anti war. Um but this experience actually has changed <laughs> my mind your cynical uh, mind it, it had it's just the experience and the audience reception um has just been so tremendous and uh i mean you know last night we had the opening and to see 620 people in the, in the stanley on their feet roaring and applauding the cast hmm. for minutes on end and um just uh having people come up to me from the Japanese Canadian community, mm. elders from the Japanese Canadian community who never thought that they would see their story told on a large stage in this fashion. It means so much to them. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm so tremendously proud of this production because of that. But also, you know, there's uh, one of our cast members was saying that his parents and grandparents came to see the show and uh, his grand grandfather, very conservative man, uh, remarked to him after the show, yeah, it's, a, it's a shame what was done to those people. Hmm. And, you know, it meant a lot. He, you know, it was significant that someone like his grandfather would acknowledge that uh, to him. And art and, did uh, that. Your art so did that. There's just, I, I, there is um, a special feeling around this production. In, in, and that starts with the company that director Stafford Arima created and the atmosphere that he created in the room. Everyone in the cast and crew, um, they've just gone above and beyond in terms of um, creating this piece. Mm. And, um, you know, it's... It, it's it's a magnificent production. I'm not tooting my own horn by saying that because it. I mean, I wrote the play, but. Um, I mean, you have animation. You have Cindy Mochizuki's yeah. animation, but just you know, there's a hundred costumes. Wow. It's, uh, it's just a magnificent uh, piece of theater, and uh, I'm you know we're all immensely proud of it, and it does seem to affect audiences on a very deep level because they do understand how relevant it is to our mm. current situation which is and it astonishes me that it wasn't as relevant when i started writing it and it was just only it was just four years ago when mm. i started writing it we didn't have all of this anti-asian hate that we have now yeah there's actually a scene in the published script that, that you read which is not in the play there's the published script w went to the publisher before rehearsal started okay and uh there were so many discoveries that we've made in rehearsal so it correlates about 90 percent but there's one scene in the published script that, that no longer exists and oh. there's another very key scene that is has been completely rewritten hmm. because there's a scene towards the end of the play with Mitsue and a, and a woman on a train. Yes. Where she's accosted by a woman on a train who is clearly a racist. And uh, when I wrote that scene three, four years ago, I felt that the play need, emotionally needed that... Uh, I, uh, Mitsue needed at that moment to be attacked in that way mm. and defend herself in the way that she defends herself in that scene. And three, four years ago, it made perfect sense. We get into rehearsal, you know, we start 
we read the play, we come to that scene, and we all collectively had, you know, the thought, well, oh, she's a Karen. Hmm. This is the Karen scene, right? Well, three, four years ago, the concept, the idea of Karen, it didn't even exist, mm-hmm. right? It didn't even exist. But now, because of all of the, you know, YouTube videos and all of the social media posts of Karens yeah. behaving badly, um, had we done the scene as scripted originally, it would have been very easy for the audience to dismiss as, oh, she's a Karen. Yeah. That's a Karen scene, right? And what is the impact of that? What is the point of that when you can dismiss a character mm. in your play as, you know, one of these deplorable Karens that we're so used to seeing on, on social media now? Hmm. So I had to rewrite that uh, scene. And it's now it's so much more powerful in the context of 2023 and this production in 2023. Wow. What kind of collaboration did you do with Mark at all, you know, beyond speaking with him and his family uh, and, you know, taking his book and using that as kind of the basis for everything? Can can you tell me about what that, what that partnership looked like or, or was it, were you not, you know, was, talking at all. Yeah, no, we, uh, he gave, he basically, once he vetted me. Yeah, kicked the tire, <laughs> and, uh, he kicked you, yeah. And once he um, decided that he could trust me with the material, he did trust me and he mm. gave me complete freedom to do what I needed to do to write a good play. Now, of course, I sent him every draft that I wrote, as, as I did to all of the members of his family. I sent all of the drafts to all the members of, his family um, to see if at any point if there was anything they were uncomfortable with or didn't agree with um, I was you know absolutely open to any feedback but um, I didn't get any I I can't say I didn't get any okay I wrote uh, a line about uh, you know someone remarked to someone else well where are you gonna work Canadian Tire you know, and then I got a note back from um, from uh, Mark's mother-in-law that uh, we didn't have Canadian Tire in Western Canada in the '60s. Huh. So I got that note. You got fact-checked. And then um, <laughs> I had a line where Mitsue reveals that she's pregnant, and she says, "I'm pregnant." And I got a note from Glory, her daughter, saying, "My mom would never say that. Hmm. She would have considered it." Uh, you know, unrefined to use the word pregnant. So that's essentially uh, as that's the only notes that I can recall getting from them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So last night then, and as, as family members have now had the chance to see the story unfold Mm -hmm. on stage, you know, what Mm -hmm. kind of feedback did you, you receive from them? And do you feel now like some, you know, you, you went into this feeling of big sense of responsibility. Do you, mm-hmm. do you feel, you know, that you have fulfilled your, your responsibility to this family? It was, uh, it was just so wonderful, Sabrina. It was surreal and wonderful. Um, I, I thought that Stan might have uh, the hardest time hmm. because, you know, there's, there's an actor. Mark's not in the play. But there's an actor on stage portraying yeah. him, right? And his mother and his brother. Yeah. So I thought he might have, and he's a very warm, loving, very open emotionally, right? Mm. Very. So I thought he might have a, have a hard time. Yeah. And, you know, he had a, he had a huge pocket full of handkerchiefs and, Kleenex, you know, he came prepared. Mm. Um, but it was actually Mark who, you know, was having, was very emotional throughout mm. tonight, I could tell. And uh, it, was, it was very touching, though. And uh, I'm, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. I, I, 
I look forward to seeing the play because I've only seen it come alive through words. Um, speaking of Mark, so the final scene, which ultimately leads to Mark's very existence, mm-hmm. depicts a meal between mm-hmm. you know the the two families and Mitsui and Ralph, and that's where the stories really come together. What do you think they each brought? to that interaction that led to you know the healing within themselves and healing within their their families and their family and what can we take from that you know mm-hmm. as people sitting here in the 21st century going through this tumultuous mm-hmm. age where sometimes the divide you know it seems Massive. I, I'm thinking about this now as a Ukrainian Canadian, you know, mm-hmm. woman right now. You know, thinking about you know the genocide that is ongoing against my people, and you know, could I ever bridge the gap, you know, with the people who are doing that to my people? You know, like mm-hmm. you know. So, so can you t- talk with me about you know who those those two individuals were mm-hmm. and what they brought to that? They found a way to not see themselves as uh, part of a people Mm. and those unlike them as other people, right? So despite all of the atrocities and, you know, deprivations that Ralph suffered at the hands of the Japanese, he was able to see Mitsue and her family not as Japanese people, this category mm. of, of horrible, inhumane beings who had killed his friends and, and done horrible things to, to him. He didn't see them as other. He was able to see them individually mm. as the human beings that they were. Right. And similarly, Mitsue was able to do that with white Canadians. Mm. Now, to say they were able to do it, I think it's a choice. It's a choice that we all have to find the grace and courage in our hearts to make. Mm. But as Mark says, you know, one of the reasons he wrote the book is because not everyone has a Ralph or a Mitsue in their lives. And he right? had both. And yeah. so he wrote the book because for people who don't necessarily have figures like that in their lives mm. as as these, you know, beacons of hope. And uh, and I, you know, as I I'm, as I say, I've been very cynical about in the past about art's ability to change minds. But I think that this production really does um, for the audience provide that hope you know it shows us a way forward Hmm. because you see in the play both of them suffering so tremendously yeah at the hand you know Mitsui at the hands of white Canadians Ralph at the hands of the Japanese yeah um but that final dinner scene is uh as my dramaturg Stephen Drover says you know we've been through hell with these people we finally get to the dinner and we just we're just so ready to break bread with them Mm. honestly i think that there should be a buffet in the lobby after where we can all just kind of share food together you know you know what stafford originally you know there was a, a time during the concept meetings where he wanted to have actual food on stage he wanted the audience to be able to smell the the spare ribs and the barbecue salmon, mm, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it was kind of logistically not possible to do right, that. Right, especially you know, with for COVID and eight, eight times a week. Yeah, you know. I, I don't know. It could be a good cross marketing relationship with a restaurant or something uh, in the future. What were some of the what were some of the feedback you know that you heard from from audience members who were not necessarily related to to Mark? Mm-hmm. You know, what was some of the the responses or the questions or conversations you were hearing? You know, last night. Yeah, it's. Um... You know, I'm gonna. You know, I'm gonna uh, give give your listeners a pro tip. Ticket. I think tickets for this show are gonna be very hard to come by mm. very soon. I think that um, when the reviews come out, 
and some of you know the influencers start posting um, because it's it's uh, it's been pretty full even through previews. Hmm. So I have a feeling that um, if you are interested in seeing this show, which I hope you will be after listening to this conversation, you should. Uh, Go to the website and book your tickets right Artsclub.com. Mm-hmm. We will have a, a link in the footnotes for this episode. Yeah, but I, I mean, I've been, I've, I sat in the audience uh, for a few of the previews and then obviously uh, last night and I've gotten feedback from the Arts Club as well about, the, about you know, comments that their patrons have left and um, it's all just positive exceedingly positive people are it's you know it's a production this the scale of the production is much larger than we're used to seeing here because it's the arts club and theater calgary that's right two of the largest regional theaters in western canada right uh pooling their resources so that that right there is bigger and then we received a tremendous um grant from the national creation fund which is administered by the uh, National Arts Center. And that fund is specifically designed to allow theaters to do things that are not usually within their means. Right. right? So Cindy's animation, integrating that into the concept of the design, Mm -hmm. uh, that was enabled by the National Creation Fund, right? So on so many levels, it's just a much larger grander production than than people are used to seeing even at the stanley or bard on the beach you know Mm. it's just much larger so that right there people are blown away by the production values they're not used to seeing it they're not used to seeing animation obviously being integrated into the mise-en-scene in the way that we have done Mm -hmm. there's a cast of 13 playing dozens of characters as i mentioned earlier there's a hundred costumes yeah so um as theater it's a pretty full meal it's a feast it's a Mm -hmm. theatrical feast and uh on top of that when you add the relevance and importance of the story uh just the tremendous performances of the cast from top to bottom it's you know it's uh it's just blowing people's minds really and um and then you know like in terms of the script i have i kind of have a hard time talking about like how great this i'm pretty great though i'm I'm proud of the script (laughs) i'm proud of the script but um it's you know and i've tried to explain it it's like when you have children and you see your children playing sports or performing in a concert or something of course you're proud of them you know in the back of your mind you know that you know half your dna is in there and you raise them and and you're proud of them but they're it's also them it's also them they're independent human beings they have a relationship to other people and to the world that is independent of you right so that's how i feel about the script right i mean i sure i wrote it but everyone in the cast everyone who sees it has a different relationship to it Mm. than separate from me people who don't like me particularly might like the script they might (laughs) like the play even though they hate my guts or think i'm an asshole so you know okay uh, i have never met anybody who thinks that about you um uh, i doubt that i mean if something wrong with them if they if they think that um (laughs) i you have recently, this is, it sounds like it's a pivot, but it's not really. You've had fun roles recently in Star Trek Discovery, mm-hmm. uh, in Orphan First Kill, mm-hmm. such a fun, a fun project. And we're all excited to see you as a Fire Lord Sozin mm-hmm. in the upcoming live action adaptation of Avatar Lester Airbender. How does a project like Forgiveness, the work that you've done there, the discoveries that you've made, impact your work as an actor it's a that's a really interesting question i i will have to see Hmm. um because you know since rehearsal started mid-december up until now i mean there's 
not much film and TV that happens during that period anyway. Right. But I haven't been on set since rehearsal started, so I'm not quite sure. Um, I I do feel as an artist that this production is just on a different level mm. from anything else that uh, I've experienced. Yeah. And um, I think that that probably makes me less interested in, you know, uh, incidental roles here and there. Um, and it probably makes me less interested in the whole uh, song and dance and, and uh, you know, the, the whole rat race of auditioning and blah 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 of being an actor. Because as an actor, you're always a hired gun, let's face it. You know, unless you happen to be one of 10 A-list actors in the world who get to, you know, pick and choose and control the production and et cetera, you mm -hmm. know. So obviously to have written a script that has received such a tremendous production with Stafford Arima, a world-renowned director, and then to have all of the resources of the Canadian theater ecology thrown at it, and then for the Arts Club and Theater Calgary to give us this sandbox that we could play in and create in, you know, mm. um, there's just so much more fulfillment there than going on a TV show, right, for yeah. four or five days and uh, being a hired gun. Um, I also realized myself that there is just so much more satisfaction and fulfillment for me in seeing the other actors performing my play. Hmm. Uh, I just derive so much satisfaction. That's why I don't write myself roles. Hmm. I mean, I could have easily have written myself a role. I in was going to ask you if there was a right? role that you could that you could see yourself slipping in, or if there's moments where you're like, "Oh, I would love to be on stage in this." So that that didn't happen for you. Well, you know, like I mean, we've had discussions about well, because we did have a couple of uh, bouts of COVID in the cast, right? And uh, so the conversation, you know, has occurred where. Uh, hey, hero, you know, if so-and-so goes down or so-and-so goes down, you're probably going to have to go on, yeah. on stage as, uh, you know, on book stand-in because you, you know the play, obviously, and that would be the most obvious choice. Right. right? And, but you know what? I have no, no desire. Hmm. Like, I mean, I can imagine... At a, at a different time in my life, you know, I would be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm ready. I'm, I hope I do get, I mean, not that I'm not hoping for another actor to get sick, but right. Yeah. Uh, I have absolutely no desire That's because incredible. I just get so much joy. Yeah. And, you know, there is the reality that we don't get to see Asian actors on the Stanley stage in such a grand production mm -hmm. it's very rare that that happens and uh i'm just so proud above more than anything else i'm just so proud that i did actually create these meaty roles for manami hara and june kumura and yoshia bancroft and giovanni and mm. you know because we don't usually get to see them do this do this stuff and uh so that's it's just tremendously fulfilling and satisfying for me to have uh, you know contributed to that i love that evolution that evolution as well you know between i mean what you spoke about you know when you were here in 2019 and now and 
I will continue to ask you these questions in the future and we can see how you are, mm. you're moving through things. So Forgiveness runs at Vancouver Stanley Theatre until February 12th, and then it'll move to Calgary? Right, Is that it, the opens, plan? it opens in Calgary March 10th. Okay. Uh, until April 1st, yeah. Okay, so if, if you're in Vancouver uh, and it, get get the to the arts club.com and uh see if you can get some tickets you know as soon as as you can because as hero says they're selling really really well thank you hero for coming today thank you sabrina for this opportunity it's always a pleasure absolutely absolutely it is if people want to follow you on social media wh where can they look for you uh where can they find you instagram twitter Hiro Kanagawa TV, mm -hmm. uh, Facebook, just Hiro Kanagawa. Okay. And um, depending on you know how Twitter goes, I'm also I have also started. Uh, Are you a Mastodon? I'm on Mastodon. I'm on I'm on uh, Counter Social. I Are you on Counter Social? Yeah, I haven't been active. I mean, I've established uh, profiles, but I right. haven't actually posted anything yet. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm on Mastodon and I'm on Hive, but then that went down. And it hasn't come, like, I don't think it came back up, but I'm like, oh, okay. If it does, I'll, I, I'm there as well. But I think that we will always find a way to, uh, to, to find each other and to find our people. It doesn't yes. have to be Twitter. Anyway, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. The Web Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane Devley for the original music. Wyvere Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. You can find us on all the socials at Wyvere Screen Scene and at Sabrina Arm, and that's on Instagram, Twitter for now, Facebook, and Macedon, and on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to podcasts for free, and also at our home on the web at wyverescreenscene.com. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! Hi friends, Kat Lawhequist here, and I'm excited to introduce you to thedramaclass.com. Thedramaclass.com provides online workshops and classes designed to provide inspiration and instruction in the sometimes overlooked areas you need to be successful in your acting career. Things that they don't often cover in studio classes. Things like tax prep for actors, the power of costume in getting a job, what to do if you primarily work on camera and find yourself with a voiceover audition, what you can do to adjust your performance to the camera lenses being used, and so much more. Maximize your opportunities by filling in the gaps that will make your craft your career. Visit us at thedramaclass.com, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social, and explore what will take you to the next level.